welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is the third and penultimate part on my series on libertarianism. So, as the story progressed, we talked about the rise of libertarianism in opposition to what I've been calling progressive liberalism. We talked about how that was impacted by science. In this episode, we're going to look at the role of elites in ideology formation and the impact of the First World War. I got a little carried away with some of this, but I think I finally got set up the confrontation that I want to in the Second World War between Hayek and Keynes, which is what I've been building up to all series, and that showdown will be the final part. That'll be out next week, and then we'll be back to interviews. So I got into some of my own views towards the end of this, but the point of this series isn't to like give you a particular view of the world, it's to explore different ways of analysing and of viewing the world. So I hope you like it, and as always, send me feedback. So, without any further preamble, this is part three of my libertarian series, War and the Elites. What is the relationship between the elites, the people in power, and ideology? Because as we commonly think about it on the political left right now, ideology is something the elites do to us, right? Ideology is a tool of control used by the powerful, the politicians, the billionaires, all of that, to keep us in line, to make us not question. And that certainly is one way of looking at what ideology does. But actually, it's an account that leaves some holes. And it's some holes that I'm going to explore in this episode. Because if you think about the story we've been telling so far in the last two episodes, a lot of that story actually doesn't make any sense if you think about ideology merely as a tool of elites to dominate mass populations. Now, I'm not denying that that is a function of ideology, certainly, right? But consider the story we've been telling thus far. So far, we've been telling the story of two ideologies that from a common ancestor have diverged and are now in competition with each other. So the common ancestor was classical liberalism, or proto-liberalism, the, the ideas that began to emerge in the 1700s with figures like John Locke and Montesquieu that thrived and flourished with the American Revolution, and so on and so forth. Ideas of the rights of the individual, the individual as the unit of analysis for society, the value of freedom, all of which, of course, were located inside a broader cluster of, particularly for figures like Locke, theological values. Now, beginning in the 1800s and clearly visible by the end of that century, 
that one family had developed into at least two recognisably distinct families. On the one hand, there was what I've been calling progressive liberals. So these were people like John Stuart Mill in the 1850s and 60s, going on to people like Hobson and Hobhouse through to the turn of the century, people like Ritchie, who, although there's differences between them, we can note some commonalities, some recurring themes. They all, following classical liberals, valued the individual. They all valued freedom. They also had this developmental conception of human nature, an idea of the improvability, the perfectibility of mankind, the drawing forth of the possibilities of people. And that was mirrored on the societal level by a view of the progress of mankind, the possibility of societies continually changing and evolving. It was also linked to ideas of limited and accountable power, and the idea of society, of social needs and social goods. And this formed a, a, com a complex cluster of variables that came together to create a profile of a particular type of liberalism. In opposition to that, although they wouldn't have had the word to describe themselves at the time, were what I've been calling libertarians. They often just called themselves classical liberals at the time. Their opponents, the progressive liberals, I've been learning in my reading for this, often would call them individualists. What does that insult mean? Surely the progressive liberals were also individualists. Well, yes, but they were individualists of a different sort. To them, individualism, to the progressive liberals, that is, was always located within this cluster of values. So furthering individuality meant, yes, leaving people alone to a certain extent, but also providing the social support needed for them to grow and to develop and to flourish. So it's a very different sort of, liberal, of, of individualism. On the other side, we see an individualism that's located purely within the constraints of an abstract freedom and of pure property rights understood as absolute individual control. So in that, the individual becomes a much more constrained, much more narrow type of individualism. And in that, we see the first major aspect that I've been trying to explicate of political ideologies, which is that they're competitions over the control of language. So you have liberals like John Stuart Mill, saying freedom means flourishing and individuality and pr progress and development. And then on the other side, you have libertarians or individualists or classical liberals or however you want to phrase it, like Herbert Spencer saying, that's not what individualism means. Individualism is, quote, when you are left secure in your person and property, end quote. Now, the next step I introduced was that in competing over the control of language, these two different ideologies, and these, by the way, aren't the only two ideologies of the time. You also have socialists. You also have conservatives. Pretty soon in the story, we're going to get to fascists. But these two ideologies try to weaponize objectivity. And the way they do that is they take up scientific theories like the theory of evolution or Newtonian mechanics and try to wrap themselves, try to wrap their core concepts in scientific sounding language. So 
evolution, survival of the fittest, to use a term Herbert Spencer phrased, what that means is you have all these different individuals competing in society, much like um, in an evolutionary system, and the people who end up on top are the fittest, and they've earned the right to survive. Well, hang on, says um, L.T. Hobhouse a generation or so later. Evolution surely looks at the group, at the unit. We're looking at the survival of societies. And if we look at the the survival of societies, the societies that survive best tends to be ones that balance the needs of the individual and of the society. Now, the same thing happens with um, Newtonian mechanics. This importation of ideas of equilibrium and stasis into the political the idea of discrete objects moving in predictable patterns, what's going to form the modern field of economics. Libertarians are immediately going to latch onto that and go, oh, well, this just proves what we've been talking about. You see, if you understand society as a pattern of discrete objects and so on and so forth, and then liberals are going to come along and say, well, that's not what it means, dot, dot, dot. But here's one thing I want to point out about this is that when we're looking at the competition of these two ideologies, one of the things they're competing for is elite acceptance, right? The type of progressive liberalism I've been describing, this is not the same thing as, like, Marxism or even socialism or something like that. This is something that absolutely competes for elite control, and elites who value this ideology compete for overall political control. There is a liberal party through this period who, although, you know, they've favoured extending the voting franchise, having some restrictions on the economy to protect workers' rights, stuff like that, these are not people who are looking to overthrow the system by any stretch. In Britain at the time, many of them are lords and earls and all of these old-timey titles we have in the UK. Now, there are, of course, in the period, genuine radicals. There are genuine socialists who just want to tear the whole system down, as well as socialists like Edward Bernstein at the turn of the century who want to compete for the changes they want within democratic systems. But so what's going on here? And I think we have to, to, to take a step back at this moment and ask ourselves about the method that we're employing to look at what political ideologies are. Why is it that ideologies would be competing for the control of the elite? So I've been using a methodology to look at ideologies that I owe to Michael Frieden. Now, Frieden himself might dispute certain aspects of it, but it's a style of looking at it. The other big style of looking at what political ideologies are is Marxism. And Marxism is going to give us a different picture again. So before we proceed with this story, it might be useful to look at what this period of time, you know, we've considered from the 1860s right up through the turn of the century, and we're just waiting for something big to happen in 1914, which we'll get to. But that sort of period will look different if you approach it with a different methodology. So we've been looking at ideologies as competitions for the control of political language. Well, what happens if we, we, we look at them through the Marxist lens? Now, if you're hearing a sound there, are you hearing it? 
That is actual Marxists gritting their teeth through what I'm about to say. Marxism is a huge system. It is a total view of the world, not just of politics and morality, but of science, of epistemology, of, of everything. So I'm only going to be able to highlight a couple of quick features of Marxism. Because you would think, right... Marxism would give you a much more directly exploitative view of ideology, right? I said we tend to do view ideology as something that the elites do to us, but actually you get a little bit more of a subtle view in Marxism. And so I just want to bring a couple of the elements of the Marxist view of ideology in here. And by the way, I'm not a professional political theorist. I'm not going to say, I think freedom is right and Marxist, Marxism is wrong about how we view political ideologies. That's, that's not my purpose at all. I'm just saying the, here are two ways of thinking about the history of ideas. And I leave it up to you, which you like. And of course, there's lots of other ideas out there as well. But these are two that have been very influential. So the first thing to point out about the way Marxists view the rise of a particular ideology, uh, liberalism, economic thought, libertarianism, whatever you want to call it, is they view it as an, uh, an aftershock in the ideal to material circumstances. So what do I mean by that? So when it comes to philosophies of history, there's two big th ways you can separate them between idealists and materialists. So an idealist might say that people have ideas and they go out into the world and change the world on the basis of those ideas. A materialist would say, if you want to understand ideas, first you have to look at the material circumstances of people's lives. You have to look at the economic setup. You have to look at how they're employed. What, they, what does this person actually just do all day long, right, is much more important to understanding that person than any sort of, like, grand highfalutin philosophy so there's a wonderful bit in Das Kapital where Marx says, and I'm slightly paraphrasing this because it's a long quote, but he says, they accuse us communists of having no, no methodology. They accuse us of abstract reasoning. They're the ones doing abstract reasoning. Our method starts with real things, real men, not in some fantastical state of abstract isolation, as the liberal theorist imagines them, but real people in their real material circumstances, in their real jobs. That's where we start, and anything else is secondary to that. So, like, if you're having trouble picturing this, Imagine you get you, you have a friend who applies for a job and they say they don't really want it and a oh, banana republic, I don't want to be a manager there, aren't they? Aren't they like kind of racist or something? And like, do I want to spend my whole day like training people how to fold clothes? That sounds that sounds terrible and, and wait, how much was the salary again? Oh. Oh that that was how much it was? Okay, well, you know, I'll um I'll look at it, and, um, yeah, you know, you, you know, a couple of days later, the more I think about this job, the more I'm really excited for it. You know, this is a really great opportunity for me, and it's a great company, you know. Gives a lot of jobs to people in the third world. And here's the really important thing to note. Can you picture what I'm saying, right? You, you all must have seen something like that unfold. Here's the really important point about that. That person isn't self-consciously lying. Or if they are, they're lying to themselves. They're not, 
They're not saying that for your benefit. They're saying that for their benefit. Does that make sense? And and that's a couple of features I want to point out of this account of ideology. Is firstly, the material circumstance comes first. The ideas come second. Right? The ideas we hold are a way of making sense of the world that we can't control. We can't control what job offers we get, what sort of economy we live in. Not really. We can control how we think about it, and we have to think about it in a way that it's okay for us, right? How are you going to go to work every day doing something that you believe is exploitative and evil? Have you, Anyone who's ever worked for a big organisation, do you not notice there's these lines they feed you to sort of justify what we're doing? And you start believing them after a certain amount of time. And so, actually quite counter to the idea that ideology is a cynical tool for elites to control the masses, ideology is a way of elites justifying it to themselves, to making sense of it themselves, to telling them that it's okay. And another way you might want to think about that, and I think this is, this is true, probably, if we're allowed to say that, is actually... If you think about ideologies as a sort of, <laughs> Frieden would hate me using this term, but as a sort of virus that latch onto society and, and propagate themselves through the generations, with the more effective ones surviving and the more effective ones dying out. You see that evolutionary metaphor I just did there? As if that would somehow make my argument more objective? You see that? It's always very hard to get behind ideology, right? Even Even in yourself. But... If you think about ideologies that way, who's it more important for an ideology to infect? Surely the elites, right? If you can only get your ideology passed on to a hundred people, then I want it to go to the most hundred important, influential, powerful people in that society. Surely, right? That's where the ideology is going to have its greatest impact, and that's where it's going to propagate itself. Another aspect, and I'll mention this just quickly, that Marxists really pick up on when they look at the rise of libertarianism, is they see it as a sort of inversion. Now, I'm not arguing for Marxism here, I just, I just think this is an interesting set of ideas that, if you haven't heard them before, I want to introduce you to. Marxists see, particularly a sort of libertarian ideology, but actually ideology in general, as sort of the world standing on its head. Um, Marx has this metaphor of a camera obscura, which I'll just quickly go through if you haven't. You know, it's a bit of old-timey technology, and I only know what the thing does because I learned this Marx quote. So if you imagine a pinhole camera, right? So you have like a black sheet and just literally a pinhole in it through which light can shine through. If you set it up just right, the light shining through will create a projection of the image of the world that it's seeing on, say, a sheet of cloth behind it. But here's the interesting thing. Because of some complex physics, which I don't really understand, the image will be the other way up. So in the most old-timey photography, the images would always turn out upside down. Now, that's not really a huge deal, 
because, you know, you just turn them the right way up again. But it's sort of an interesting quirk, right? And Marx says, you've got to understand that ideology is like a camera obscura. It's an image of the world, but it's an image of the world that's been turned upside down. And he goes on to say that it is no less a result of historical and material circumstances that ideology inverts the world than that it is a result of physical circumstances that the camera obscura inverts the world. But what does that mean? I mean, if, if, you, if you're a libertarian listening to this, surely you're thinking, well, you know, a capitalist society was developing and libertarianism was providing a description and a justification of that society. You know, the society became more individualistic and market-based and, you know, so on and so forth. What an earth are you talking about, says the Marxists. What on earth do you mean that society from, you know, the industrial revolution to the advent of the firm to the advent of capitalism has become more individualistic? We have all become so much more bound to one another. Back in the feudal time, you know, you had your farm and you farmed the land and, you know, you made a living and to the extent someone was interfering with you, it was, you know, the local lord or whatever was charging rents from you. But that was it. You know, if you could get out from the lord and get your own farm, you could make your own produce. Think of the, the string of people who have been involved just in me bringing this conversation to you. Think about the factory workers who made the microphone. Think about the thousands of people necessary to make the hosting services. All of the people who had to design the recording software that I'm using. Just by you hearing my voice, what, tens of thousands of people were involved in that? Unknowingly, and often unthinkingly on our part, but beginning with the Industrial Revolution and the advent of the firm and the advent of capitalism, our lives became so inexorably bound together, to which the idea of an individual exiting society, becoming a discrete abstract unit separate from it, has become absolutely unthinkable. It would just be to die, essentially. Every single aspect of our lives is interconnected with the aspects of thousands of other people's lives. Just like nations have become more intermeshed with globalization. Globalization, by the way, is a term that goes back to 1908. None of these are new debates, right? What on earth are you talking about, the Marxist says? that you think society's become individual or more free, right? You go to work every day. You have to do exactly what your boss says. You have no ability at all to refuse that. You go back home to your apartment where your landlord will decide if you get to own a pet, if you get to smoke, if you get to have a loud party. And if you have a nice boss and a nice landlord who stay out of your hair, you are still a slave with a kind master, the Marxist would say. What on earth are you talking about that you're more individual or more free? But, and here's where Marxism gets clever, that's not an accident, right? Remember, ideology to the Marxist is always about, as much as justifying it to other people, it's about justifying it to ourselves. So it's no accident, the Marxist would say, that as societies become so deeply interconnected, as we become so deeply unfree because of that, we start recognising that the most important aspects of our society are that we're individual and that we're free. 
It's not an accident, right? That the, the, the camera obscura f- has an inverse image. It's not an accident that ideology is an inverse image. So that's that's the 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 Marxist sort of interpretation of this period, right? Now, I'm not saying that's right, and I'm not saying the one I've been giving you is right, but they each sort of answer questions that the other doesn't, right? Now, here's the problem, though. Well, not the problem, but here's where I think Frieden's account slightly answers questions that Marx doesn't, in that Marxists tend to simplify and they tend to unify ideology because of this. Remember in Marxism, there are only ever two classes of society, and hence there's only ever two ideologies. There's the ideology of those who don't have property and those who do. An ideology is just a way that they justify that to themselves and to each other. But here's the thing. If you look at the competition, they're very fierce, they're very real, they're very meaningful and important and impactful competition that occurred between progressive liberalism and libertarianism. How do we make sense of that in market terms? Why are elites competing with themselves? And I think the answer surely has to be that, yes, material circumstances matter. And yes, a lot of times we are all just lying to ourselves about why we accept them. Surely that's true. But also ideas matter and ideas impact the world. And ultimately, any theory of ideology is going to have to be a dialectic between the two of them. And that ideologies compete for controlling mass populations, but they also compete for controlling elites, that elites, as well as mass populations, are capable of self-consciously thinking about this. What do we want to do? If you are the elite, how do you use your power? What is it there for? And I think this is the point where we might want to say, what are the positive things about political ideology? Because we started by saying, well, you know, on the contemporary political left, we think about ideology as a nasty sort of trick that's been played on us. Marxists, it's this sort of self-delusion that inverts the world. I've been talking in a very abstract way about competition for the control of political language. Why would you want to have ideology? Surely we want to just see the world objectively. Well. That's probably not possible, at least not in moral terms. I think there's better and worse answers, but there's always going to be differences. And even what objectivity is, as we've seen, is something that's very contested by political ideologies. Now, I think there's some ways out of that and where that doesn't lead you to postmodernism or hard relativism. But let's just think about it. Why would you want an ideology? Well, I'd put it to you that you kind of need one. And this, I'm going to give you a micro example, and then we're going to go to a macro example. And I think in the macro example, we're going to see much more clearly the role of ideology in elites. But let's just take a micro example. Let's take you. And let's say you witness an injustice. Well, no, injustice is loading it ahead of you. Let's say you experience a scenario where you don't really know how to react. Let's say, if you're a man listening to this, that you go into a job interview, and it's a group interview, and there's ten other people there, and the hiring director or whoever comes out, he says, this job will only be available to men, so any, any women can leave the room, you don't qualify. All the men, please come with me, and we'll get to the first interview questions. What do you do 
in that situation. Now, the first thing I want you to note is there's no way of behaving in that situation that's non-ideological. If you say, well, hang on, you can't say that, that's unfair, or, you know, if you say something like that, you are taking a stand. You're asserting a moral worldview. You're asserting the view that this is not acceptable. Which, by the way, is a view that most people in human history wouldn't hold. Most people in human history would view it as perfectly acceptable to exclude women from education and employment. Or, if you're okay, cool, yeah, I'll follow you. Bye, ladies. I'm heading off into the room. Then you've implicitly sided with the status quo. So there's no neutral there. What do you do in that situation? Well, we'll think about it. What would you do? I think most people, most contemporary liberal men, would like to think that we'd say, no, no, hang on, that's not right, or screw you and your job, I'm going home, I don't want any job that that treats women this way, and while I'm at it, I'm going to report you to the Equal Employment Commission, right? We'd like to think we'd say something like that. Why? Most people in human history, we're not reacting to some natural or innate morality there. Most people in human history, again, as a matter of observable fact, would have thought that denying women employment was perfectly fine. Indeed, in the vast majority of human societies, denying women employment was a settled fact about societies. It was baked into the political and social and legal structure. So, the fact that we might stand up and say, well, that's not fair... That's a result of an ideology, like I say. And it sounded sinister when I said it last time. Your mind was designed by people. You were taught to think and feel a certain way. But sometimes maybe that's better, right? It's better that we think that way. Or at least that's how we feel about it now. And more than that, you weren't expecting that going in. And let's just pay really close attention. Let's just observe the feelings that arise in us as that situation occurs. All right, all the women can leave. Do we have to stop and say, well, hang on, let me think about whether that's right or not. Does that meet a a, a codified political philosophy? Hang on, let me, everyone just wait one sec. I'm going to get my John Rawls out and let me just have a think, do a little bit of analysis. Oh yeah, this seems to violate the first principle of justice. All right, everyone, half an hour later, everyone, I have decided that this is, that's not how we do it. We just find ourselves feeling a certain way. We find a certain sort of moral indignation within us. And then how do we justify that? Through our political ideology. The fact that 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 feeling rose up within us. And then we used words like unfair or unjust. Again, in a way that most people throughout all human history would not have used those words. The fact that we did that is because we have political ideologies. Even if these are largely functioning at a subconscious level. And, And this is... Another aspect of talking about political ideologies is we need these, right? We need them. Is it appropriate to um, aggressively negotiate a wage from your employer? Well, you know, rational self-interest would seem to justify that. 
Maybe other approaches wouldn't. But you need something to guide that behaviour. And at a matter of practicality, that can't be adherence to an abstract theory. It can't just be, well, I agree with John Rawls and these two principles, because one, you're not when someone says all the women leave the room, you're not going to have time to react to that and to get your two theories of justice out and, like, scholarly research. You need to know how to feel in the moment. And the second reason is those choices are going to be thrust on you all the time. And some of them are going to be really unexpected. And they're not going to admit of a neutral answer, so you have to have something. Ideologies are a software that we have to have running. Because we have to be able to navigate the world. We'd be lost without them, right? So that's my miniature example. But again, remember, in spite of everything that they say about themselves, that elites are just people. They're just, they, they have the same foibles and weaknesses, the same inability to refer to some rational standard in the heat of the moment, and the same helplessness and confusion when they're encountering events and choices that they haven't encountered before. What do you do? What do you do if, say, you're living in contemporary New York City, and someone asks you if you'll join a cult whose initiation rites involve removing a square inch of skin from the initiate's forehead in a way that precludes repair. You've forever just got this terrible wound on your forehead. Do you report them to the police? Do you try to talk them out of it? Do you maybe go along to, to join the cult? What about if they're doing this to their kids? Now, this is the function of political ideologies, to bridge that divide between thought and action. You've never considered that choice I just gave you, right? What do you do? Now, afterwards, you're going to have a story to tell, but at the time, you just feel a certain way about it. Ideologies bridge that. They give us means of expression. Maybe people are okay to have this cult. Maybe, you know, we can think about it in liberty principle terms. Over his own body and own mind, the individual is sovereign. But then again, the kids, maybe we have to protect children. Should this be legal? How far does informed consent go? These are huge, complicated debates, but we need to know what to think about these debates when the choice confronts us. Afterwards, after the fact, we'll be able to go back and rationally make sense of it. And that's a great gift that political ideologies give us, which doesn't mean they're always rational or always right. But we can't be without them in a certain sense, because we have to be in community with others. And ideologies are competitions for the control of that community, and they compete for the control of it by competing for how we talk to each other, how we relate to each other. They also compete for what's objective, what's true, and they compete for the control of our leaders. Because the, you know, the little choices, well, little's perhaps the wrong word, but the small-scale choices, what do you do if you encounter sexism, or this weird cult I just made up? Then there's the big choices. What happens when the entire world is sliding towards war? What happens when the entire world is at war in a way that nobody really wanted to be, and in a way that seems that you can't get out of it? What happens when an entire generation is destroyed in a way that actually maybe was just a fluke, and how do you think about that?
And this is the next step of our story, right? We've been building a world where the line of progress, or progress of a kind, I guess, you know, your Marxists, your socialists would dispute that, but where technology has grown more advanced, societies have become more integrated, democracy has become more widespread and more complete, ignoring for a minute the heinous contradictions of British imperialism and all of the things we were doing in the colonies, but for someone on the inside of that... It does seem to have progressed, and when you look at writers like Keynes and Hayek, who we're going to come to, when they look at the pre-war world, the world of, say, 1910, they talk about it as almost like a utopian mirage, that they can't believe that such a place existed. And this is, again, where I think this idea that oppression and ideology and all of the misfortunes of life are stuff that elites do to us is just not the whole picture comes in. And that I'm not going to get into the historical debate here, but there's a good argument that the First World War, when it comes, is something that nobody saw coming, and really nobody wanted. Nobody planned for this. Now, if people will say, well, if the elites didn't want it, how come it ended up happening? Because elites drop the ball, the same as the rest of us. But I'm not going to cover the whole story. You're familiar with the, the um, rough outline, right? It's like a series of dominoes falling. This guy, um, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, gets shot. That causes um, Austria-Hungary, her allies Germany, to put pressure on the Serbs. Russia comes in to defend the Serbs. And it's just like a sort of domino effect. Now, a lot of accounts looking back at this have sort of said none of this was really inevitable. At every point, the key actors involved were sort of looking for ways to get out of it, right? They were all, and it wouldn't have even taken brilliance, competence might have done it, but they were all bound by certain forces acting on them, and they all struggled to think outside the box in order to prevent them from doing the next thing. Austro-Hungary feels compelled by this, I mean, now I guess we would call it like a terrorism situation, you know, accounting for one man's terrorist as another man's freedom fighter and all that. They feel compelled to take action, just as America felt compelled to take action after 9-11 or something like that. Russia feels compelled to honour that alliance. Germany feels compelled to honour theirs. And by the way, None of them know what's coming down the line. There's been a possibility of a pan-European war forever. It's been a hundred years since Napoleon, right? But nobody, one, nobody thinks it's particularly likely. And two, even if they think it's likely, nobody understands what it's going to mean. But all of the best-selling books at the time, by the way, were essentially predicting that this war is impossible. There's too much to lose. There's too much money to lose. Elites are irrational, after all, and even if they're not benevolent, they're self-interested. You see that word again? Rational self-interest. You see the work it does in the world, and you see how fantastically wrong it's about to be. This is correct, right? Everyone has too much to lose. Nobody gained anything from what's about to happen. People lost everything. Entire civilizations were destroyed. As Engel said, the crowns will roll in the gutter. Nobody. The, the argument is, is, is valid as far as it goes, right? 
A war is in nobody's best interests. It's in everyone's worst interests. No elite is about to precipitate this. That's the fine argument, except it happened. And the argument's correct. Nobody did want this. There's an argument that particularly Germany and Russia, when they flipped the mobilization of their armies, kind of set us on a track of which there was no getting off it again. But nobody intended this, so why did it happen? Well, have you never been in a situation at work or in a friendship group where you end up with a worst-case scenario that everybody wanted to avoid? This happens all the time, right? Have you ever never seen a supervisor threaten to fire an employee and the employee doesn't want to get fired and the supervisor doesn't want to fire them? But somehow that process of threatening sets in process a dynamic that leads to that result that nobody wanted. And apply that on a grand scale. Again, elites are just people. To imbue them with rationality is to say that they have properties that we don't, which I think is bizarre and elitist and anti-democratic. So what's going to happen as these countries mobilise. I won't go through the whole thing. There's enough good military history on this. If you want a really good extended podcast, um, Dan Carlin's Blueprint for Armageddon is really good here. And if you want a book that lays out this case, that this was just a dynamic that got out of control, the, the really great book is Guns of August. And basically, um, there's going to be two sides in this war, the central powers, which is primarily Germany and Austria-Hungary, which is a country that doesn't really exist anymore, and then they're going to find themselves surrounded by, on the one hand, Russia, and on the other side, France. Now, Germany has long had a plan to deal with this, because as soon as the war happens, they're encircled, right? Germany's plan is they mobilise first, they get their armies to the field first, they knock out France in a quick, swift blow. They turn around and deal with Russia. It's called the Schlieffen Plan. And as badly as it went, and as stupid as it sounds now, it almost worked, right? So Germany have been preparing for this for, like, almost a generation, to the point where every reservist in the army knows where they have to go, where they're going to report to, the uniforms that'll be there, the food supplies that'll be there, the trains that will take them to the front. And this is where a lot of what the ideologies we've been talking about now are just going to be proved mute. Because we've been dealing, right... With, with the internal problems and contradictions and possibilities caused by industrialization, caused by urbanization, caused by the rise of the bureaucratic state, which in the period that we've been talking about from the 1870s through to 1914 has, has really become something different. Never in human history have nation states had the type of capabilities that they do now, Right? Look at what they're about to do. Germany is about to, in the first few days of the war, put something like 1.5 million men into the field. As Dan, Dan Carlin points out, this is twice the size of the Roman army, full field army at its height. Nothing like this has ever existed. In the ancient age, you know, maybe the, the, the ancient Middle East or the Persian Empire or the Roman Empire, these great world-spanning empires at their height 
might be able to put a couple of hundred thousand men in the field, but they wouldn't be able to keep them there for very long. Rome was considered extraordinary when um, they lost three successive battles to Hannibal Barker, and they were able to hang in there. That was considered extraordinary at the time. The type of capabilities these modern nation-states are now going to bring are going to make war unthinkably ugly compared to what's happened before. And all of what we've been worrying about is the internal dynamics of these. So little thought has been given to what's happened when this has truly been unleashed. And one thing I have to remind myself is, is the scale of these deployments. Again, Germany is deploying millions of men in days without computers without any sort of organisational... There's this wonderful moment where von Moltke, who's like the, the commander of the forces, um, is hearing this idea, like, lose the war, stupid idea from um, Kaiser Wilhelm. The Kaiser is saying, what about if we did this? What about we did that? Like, literally moving the armies across on the board. And von Moltke grabs his hand and says, one does not improvise the deployment of millions. So, you have millions of Germans in incredible order, advancing on France. They decide, and this was part of the Schlieffen plan, to bypass France, go through Belgium. It's what they tried successfully, by the way, in the Second World War, because Belgium is allied to England. England then has to get involved on the side of Belgium, something England did not want to do, and Germany did not want them to do, but it was just kind of a gamble that went wrong. They figured, look, if we just do it. We'll say, listen, Belgium, just don't resist. We're just going to march your army through and we'll give you some money afterwards, okay? Given that resistance is suicidal, Germany was just gambling that Belgium would just roll over and they didn't. And then they were gambling that if Belgium did fight, they could sweep them away quite quickly and England wouldn't get involved. But they did so again, you've got this situation where nobody wanted this to happen, right? And this is what I really want to stress with the First World War and why I'm going to go into a little bit of detail with it, is how cataclysmic this was, right? We talked about choices before where something intrudes on your everyday life that is unpredictable and shocking and you don't know how to handle it and you don't know how to make sense of it. Well, this is the societal equivalent of that, right? As Germany enters France, you know, we think about the First World War as trenches, and it was that eventually, but in the opening battles, you were going to have men lining up in rows like they did in Napoleonic times, but with machine guns and heavy artillery, and like the French army's going to go into battle not even with, with helmets, but with cloth caps. How many men are going to die because of that? And... It's very fast-moving at first, and when the initial engagements happen, nobody knows what to make of it. There was a battle in the Battle of the Frontiers where French forces counterattacked along the middle of the German front, where they thought no one was there, and they wander into, like, 80 German divisions, and they annihilate them. And France loses 60,000 men in a single engagement in a few hours. To try and think about that, to put that in context, that is the total combat losses America suffered in the entire Vietnam War in an afternoon. 
And this isn't some terrible freak isolated incident. This is going to happen again and again and again in what got called afterwards the most terrible August in the history of the world. As it looks like France is falling, they counterattack. There's this, the, the miracle at the Marne. We won't go into all of this. Um, and the Germans are pushed back. They push back again. And then they just start digging in. It's all you can do, right? And then we get the development of the trench systems and the trench warfare. And this might not be a story that resonates as much with Americans. But this is so deeply part of your national psychology if you grew up in Europe. The idea of the trenches. Where you have men fighting maybe a mile apart, maybe even a few yards apart. And just holes carved out in the ground. And it's going to rain. And those holes are going to turn to mud. And there's going to, people are going to die. It's war. And there'll be time before the bodies can be taken away. There'll be rats and filth and people will just be living in their own excrement and it will be some of the most appalling conditions that, that any army has ever been asked to fight in because it goes on for so long. Like in ancient warfare, as bloody and as nasty as it was, it was usually over in a day, maybe a campaigning season. This is going to drag on. Germany, of course, will have to fight the Russians on the other front and as this war goes on, all of these societies are just going to be bled dry. And all of the capacities that they've been building up about industrializing and having a bureaucratic state and being able to call up all of these reserves and manpower from the empire, that we've been looking at the internal contradictions of handling that, that's in a sense going to become a massive liability because they can stay in the fight much longer and there will be an ideology there to justify this, that, that of conservatism, that of patriotism, all of that. But that ideology, too, is going to be bled dry as this war goes on year after year after year as these societies are brought to and many of them pass the brink, right? A lot of the societies here, Austro-Hungary, will not exist again after that. Again, as Engels said, the crowns will roll in the gutter. Russia is going to collapse to internal revolution. This is going to become something the communists, the socialists see as this is our time. This is, this is the moment that capitalism falls. But of course, what's so interesting about it and why a lot of people proffer the First World War is as a counterexample to Marxism. Because when it came right down to it, the workers of the world did not unite. They did not... They endured everything for the sake of their countries, for their elites. The, the ideas of like a, a socialist camaraderie just fell through. And every ideology after this ends is going to have to make sense of it. This is, after all, what ideologies are for, right? And again, Americans don't so much have a sense of this war, so I just kind of want to give you a few fragments that have been important and impactful for me. So I grew up in the UK, right? And I remember visiting some of these sites as a you know, young teenager or whatever. I saw Thiepval, which is a memorial, and um, it's these huge, vast, concrete, self-consciously ugly pillars stretching up to the sky. 
you know, 20, 30 metres high, and then pillar after pillar stretching on into seemingly endless space. And each just has names, all quite smallly written, just running up them like wallpaper. And at first, you sort of think, wow, that, that, that's just the most incredible visualisation of all the people who were lost in that war. But it's not. It's not all the people who were lost in that war. It was the lost. Those who the fortune of war did not afford the honour of a known burial. Thiepval, this massive, ugly, totalitarian monument, these columns stretching into endless space, those are just the men whose bodies we don't know where they are. I was at a cemetery in France, and I know some of this has impacted America. I'm not saying America didn't have war losses, and, you know, the crosses row on row. And I just remember um, seeing a, two, a, a small cross where it only had three letters of the person's name on, and everything else was just, like, spaces. Well, that was someone whose body was so badly mangled that they... Um, they couldn't read the ID tag. Maybe it had rusted because of the mud and the water and so on. And that is just has become... It's not even like the Second World War where there's, there's a heroic story you can tell. There, there's, really, there's really nothing here. And that has become such a part of our collective identity. And so coming out of that, how... How are these ideologies going to make sense of that? Well, in a sense, libertarianism is now going to take a backseat. It's going to go through a dormant phase. While it had been building up strength, certainly it had always been popular with businessmen, with money elites, with stuff like this. It had always had political representatives. As, as, as the big industrial societies are now over this period going to take sickening gut punch after gut punch to the point where it's amazing that they're still standing because soon after this you're going to get the great recession right not long after that you're going to get the rise of fascism so within like a decade or two big industrial societies that seemed invulnerable have just been sickeningly beat bloody to the point where you don't know how they'll survive and this abstract reasoning about, like, the market being a natural equilibrium, and it'll meet its own needs, and it'll... Yeah, okay, dude, but how do we deal with this, right? Libertarianism is no longer really going to be able to meet the political and intellectual needs of that moment. Now, likewise, you know, this is going to be a troubling time for conservatives and socialists. That's a whole other story. I'm not going to get into how they make sense of that. Here's where I want to pick the story of the ideology back up, is how do these progressive liberals make sense of that, right? Because this is a surely a big count. You know, you're, you're talking about the rise of progress, mankind as a progressive being, each generation living better than the last. What the fuck was that, Right? Surely this disproves any sort of march of progress thing. It's also going to cause progressives um, to distance themselves somewhat from this organic analogy. The, the idea of society as a living whole is going to seem rather gauche, no, after all of that. So before we get to that, though, let's look at how this war 
ended because it's in the story of how it ended that a number of features of the future of ideology in the world are going to become apparent. So one of the big decisive events is Russia goes under. The Russian Revolution happens, right? Lenin takes down the old dynasty. Now, that's such a great story, but I don't, I'm not going to be able to get into that there, but that happens. And as a result of that happening, Russia withdraws from the war. What that means is all of the men that Germany is now spending on fighting Russia can be freed up to go and fight the Allies on the Western Front. And they really throw everything they have at them. And that they lose becomes an incredible point of contention in Germany. And what a lot of people start to blame it on, including Hindenburg, the commander of the armed forces at the time, is the idea of saboteurs, of like communists and troublemakers in the ranks stirring up agitation, which there undoubtedly were, but they were, they one, they were on all sides, arguably much more so with the French. But two, what's actually amazing to me about the First World War is how comparatively minor a role such people played. That's not why Germany lost, but it very much became part of the rationale. Again, when we're looking at ideologies, it's not just what happened, it's how people interpreted what happened. And this idea of the enemy within becomes a paranoia um, about communists and about Jews bringing down our own society. And obviously that's going to have certain consequences and repercussions, right? But so after Germany has thrown everything they can at the Western Front, the Allies start to get it right. America enters the war, and finally the military problem starts to be solved. They work out how to use tanks, newly invented, aircraft basically pioneered for this, and artillery in unison to punch holes in enemy lines and exploit them, sort of like a proto-blitzkrieg. And then they slowly start rolling up the German front. And at a certain point, it, it, it becomes inevitable, and Germany signs the armistice. Now, this has been going on for years. 10 million soldiers are dead, maybe the same again in civilian casualties. It is the worst thing that has ever happened to Europe, and like how you make sense of that. And then here's where a figure who's going to be important in our story comes in, is John Maynard Keynes one of my favourite writers from this period, he's working in, some people would say running, basically, the Treasury Department in the UK. And he's a really interesting guy. Like, he's someone who is very, very liberal in his own life. Like, he tends to live in sort of communes, he's gay, or at least he is at this period, he'll get married later on. Um, he has very sort of liberal views of what he wants to see happen in the world. He's very much a sort of aesthete. Um, but he's also very much part of the establishment, and he's quite a powerful man already at this point, and he's someone who gets on well with powerful and elite figures, and him, along with Hayek, who we'll meet in a minute, are going to compete with each other for ideological control over the elite going into the post-war world. But here's just one note about Keynes that was interesting, is that he was involved in creating the settlement terms for Germany. What happens to Germany now that she's lost? 
Um, well, I'll pick up the story in Kenneth R. Hoover's Economics as Ideology, which is a book I really, really like, um, and I'm going to be using a lot towards the end of this series um, for the Keynes v. Hayek debate, which I've been setting up, and we're finally, you know, three hours in, we're finally getting to this big showdown that I've been wanting to get to. Um, but Keynes is asked to come up with a proposal for what Germany will have to pay in reparations. And I'll just quote from Economics' as ideology. Quote, As the war drags towards its bitter conclusion, Keynes rose in the estimation of his Treasury colleagues. His competency as an analyst came to the fore and opened a new community for him. That was the world of public policy. The next responsibility placed under his purview was the question of reparation to be paid to the Allies by the defeated Germans and Austrians. After due analysis of the capacity of post-war Germany, his department reported a range of figures depending on the degree of destruction. The Treasury put forward the highest figure. Prime Minister Lloyd George, remembering the Treasury's timidity on conscription, handed the problem over to members of a more politically attuned special committee who proceeded to multiply that figure by 12. So, end quote. In other words, Keynes was asked, what, come up with a plan, what should the Germans have to repay after this war? And he goes away and researches it and comes up with a range of figures and the Prime Minister takes the, most, the biggest figure and says that's still not enough and multiplies it by 12. This is going to destroy Germany. And Keynes is aware of this. He, he sees, or, yeah, he sees what's coming down the line with this. And he resigns, he crashes out of this, and in the words of economics as ideology, Hoover's, quote, with a well-sharpened pen, Keynes skewered the leaders of the West, vented his now tragic view of its destiny, and secured his own fame, end quote. So he's going to write a book in 1919 called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, where he just really lays out how much we are setting ourselves up for failure and a return to war by being this punitive, by immiserating Germany this much. He writes in that book, quote, If we aim deliberately at the impoverishment of Central Europe, vengeance, I dare predict, will not limp. Nothing can then delay for very long that final civil war between the forces of reaction and the despairing convulsions of revolution, before which the horrors of late German war will fade into nothing, and which will destroy, whoever its victor, the civilization and the progress of our generation. End quote. Keynes is just an amazing writer, who I love so much. But this is going to be the way out that progressive liberalism, and I include Keynes in that family, is going to think its way out of this war, right? Between the forces, as he says, of reaction and revolution. This is, so it's, it's going to be inalterably changed by this war. Everyone is, apart from libertarianism, which will sort of continue as this status-bound thing. But the way progressive liberals, and I'm not saying, by the way, Keynes is exactly the same as Hobson or Hobhouse or Mill or the people we've been leading up to it, but I'd argue he can be located as a member of that family, we'll see it, is on the one side, 
You have the people who run these states, the old aristocracies, the money's interests, who are just oblivious even to their own survival. And on the other side, you have the forces of revolution, the, the, um, you know, the communists and the agitators and the people whose, the dangers of whom have been made painfully explicit in the Russian Revolution. And this sort of progressive liberalism will see its role as trying to chart a course between those two extremes, where, where, where the two roads open to us both lead to the ruin of civilization, trying to find that third road. The war is also, of course, going to impact the way progressive liberalism views progress. So Keynes is going to write in 1921 a treatise on probability, which, okay, professional Keynes scholars might disagree with me here, but I would argue is essentially a recalibration of this idea of progress into probabilistic terms. So he's going to sort of argue for an approach to moral progress where we have to look at the different goods available to us, the different risks, and think on probabilistic terms. And think in a way, he, he stresses this a lot, that is epistemically humble, where we value the, the short term over the long term. Remember that great famous Keynes quote, in the long run we're all dead? Because we just know a bit more about what's going to happen in the short run. But it, it's a much more cautious but still somewhat optimistic view of progress that has obviously been impacted by the horrors of the First World War. So whereas Mill says the permanent ends of man as a progressive being, you still find a family resemblance to that in Keynes, but it's more like those things which we can move towards taking into account the risks and weighing it all together. It's a much more cautious approach, but I'd argue ultimately um, a rational one. What view of progress, what, what is on the table here? Well, this is the beginnings of what is eventually going to become welfare state liberalism, right? And, you know, Keynes is going to get together with Beveridge and write the, the, who is someone who's going to write the Beveridge report, which is going to be the foundation of the welfare state in the UK. We're not quite there yet. For now, as we go into the early 20s, there's going to be a battle between, you know, the government and the market, which can seem quite modern in some ways and quite alien in others. In, the, in some ways, you're going to have a fairly, you know, set of debates that we would recognise today about, you know, is government regulation or free markets the answer or whatever? But the question is different. The question is, when we've just been through World War I, when the global economy has crashed, when all of this has happened, how do we keep civilization going? And this is where the role of elites comes back in, right? Is these are different visions of the world that you can offer to elites, right? Now, you know, when the basic survival and role of these states is under attack. What do the leaders need to hear, right? And this is, you know, their survival, their literal, perhaps, in some cases, survival is on the line. And when you look at the moves these states made, that does seem to be the logic. Maybe give a little bit of ground as opposed to giving a lot. Let's do a little bit of socialism so we don't have to do a lot. Let's again find that middle path between reaction and revolution. Now, that's sort of what 
progressive liberalism over this next generation, certainly through the 30s and in response to the Great Depression, and culminating in the, the Second World War is going to sort of evolve into. That's the arc of this story, that's where I'm going to end it, and that's, that's what it's going to become. But what's the role for libertarianism in this? It, it's, as I've argued, essentially going to lose ground. It's going to stay fairly, fairly similar. And again, I, I'll just read you a little bit from Frieden. This is again from um, Ideologies and Political Theory. Quote, most libertarians regard human beings primarily as wealth producers rather than self-gratifiers. Though wealth production had a part to play in liberal ideologies, people were never reduced to that function in terms of their internal purposes as well as their external interaction. Even when liberal theory began to disengage from strong models of sociability, as was the case after the First World War, it did not reincarnate Homo economicus. Libertarians, on the other hand, proceeded with these time-frozen themes unabated. End quote. So this rational self-interest model stayed largely the same, but for that reason it is going to render itself somewhat, and I say somewhat, but somewhat irrelevant over a lot of the debates that's going to come. Now, it's going to be there as a reactionary force, certainly, but economics as a whole, as a profession, is going to move away from it. And I want to read you a quote. This is just this is after the First World War, but just, just before the Great Recession, um, from John Maynard Keynes' um, the end of laissez-faire, 26, which it's just, he just lays it to waste. So let's just read this. So, quote, Let us clear from the ground the metaphysical or general principles from which, from time to time, laissez-faire has been founded. It is not true that individuals possess a prescriptive natural liberty in their economic activities. It is no, quote, compact conferring perpetual rights on those who do or require, end quote. So he's just denied any natural rights foundation to the economy. And he's following, I don't know if consciously, but he's following a liberal tradition here. So going back to the, the start of progressive liberalism with John Stuart Mill, remember John Stuart Mill said, quote, society is not founded on a contract. And no good purpose is answered by inventing one in order to deduce social obligations from it. End quote. So, having cleared away the underbrush, um, uh, Keynes then goes on to just go after the full mechanics of um, what Kenneth Hoover describes as the deus ex machina of libertarianism. Quoting from Keynes, the world is not so governed from above that private and social interests always coincide. It is not so managed here below that in practice they coincide. It is not a correct deduction from the principles of economics that enlightened self-interest always operates in the public interest. Nor is it true that self-interest generally is enlightened. More often, individuals acting separately to promote their own ends are too ignorant or too weak to attain even these. Experience does not show that individuals, when they make up a social unit, 
are always less clear-sighted than when they act separately. End quote. Ah, I love Keynes. He's so good. And isn't that all just, like, so correct, right? Now, it's that last bit that Hayek is going to take up the challenge. That that um, he's going to... Hayek is going to argue that it actually is the case that individuals pursuing their own ends are more clear-sighted in the ultimate product than uh, some sort of collective policy. And that's what he what he's going to bring to the table. Now, before we get into that argument, because in response to this sort of progressive liberal worldview that's going to develop, it's going to incorporate aspects from socialism, and it's going to offer a view of progress that leads to the nation-state, Hayek is going to come and he is going to be the figure that pulls libertarianism back from the brink. And that, that's going to be our final episode. We've finally got there. We're finally going to do the showdown between these two big views of the world that's going to happen immediately after World War II um, that I've been setting up forever. But here's, here's one final question I want to ask and I want to note about the role of elites. Is If Keynes is trying to, to, to position himself between revolution and reaction as, as the only way that the civilized world might survive all of this, that it might survive, you know, the, the wars and revolutions and economic collapses. How do you take what's precious about civilization and get it through all of that? Um, and that is the gift that progressive liberalism is going to give to the world. It's going to destroy itself in the process, but it is going to, to lead the world through this. And it's so tragic that the ideology that in many ways was a key part of saving the world from fascism and destruction is now viewed by so many as fascistic. It's viewed by so many now that if you like have any government involvement in the economy, that's going to lead you straight to the Soviet gulags, right? That And that view, although it's implicit and sort of there latently in works like Herbert Spencer, that's the argument that Hayek is going to bring to the table. When Churchill says that if you bring this welfare state forward, you'll have to have, it will be just the Nazis all over again, he is paraphrasing Hayek, and we're going to get to that story and that showdown. But here's what I want to ask. I can so intuitively, if we have these options on the table of reaction, reform, and revolution, right? That's one way of construing it. But as the world, like I say, is taking these sickening body blows that just make people at the time think civilization is not going to last, I can understand the reform perspective, the idea to let's change what we need to change about our societies to make them better for their own sake, but also to allow them to survive because they're clearly not surviving. Like these old Asian regimes are not surviving, but capitalist economies are not surviving either. You know, you can have your perfect market equilibrium theory, but when everything crashes and a fascist party starts taking over, where's your self-sustaining equilibrium then? I can understand that reform perspective, and I think that's probably where I had land, would have landed had I been around then. You never know, but I think that's probably where I do. I even actually understand the revolution perspective. I understand on an emotional level a Marxist at the time who would be say, look at what factory workers are enduring, and needlessly, look at the wealth of this society. 
it's time to just do away with it. The people in charge have no claim whatsoever to moral authority. I can understand that point of view. The point of view I can't understand is the reaction one, right? Like, the people who were fighting for the status quo, even when the status quo was showing that it wasn't able to survive. That I really don't get, right? Now, the reform position, with which I've said I'm, I'm sympathetic, has always been viewed by both sides as a sort of lie, right? Like, you see this in contemporary American politics a lot. People on, like, the far radical revolutionary left view liberals and people who want to work within the system as essentially dragging their heels. They view us as essentially apologists for the status quo, people who move too slowly, people who always um, compromise what's possible and get that in the way of what actually has to be done. And I actually sort of understand that critique. You know, look at our current situation where, you know, we have this huge threat of climate change and radicals are saying, let's do this Green New Deal or let's do whatever. And a liberal responds, well, wait, we need to be, you know, careful about what would pass a Senate filibuster and stand up to the Supreme Court. That just sounds, and it is, hopelessly inadequate. And I, I, I think people are quite right to feel that it's inadequate. I would say at its best, this sort of reform-minded progressive liberalism has been genuinely ambitious and quietly, through the system, revolutionary. And when we see it at its best in the creation of welfare states, which is what's coming in this story, it really is societally transformative. On the other side, though, conservatives, the established interests, the moneyed interests, the aristocracy, they always view the sort of reformers as lying from the other end. They just view us indistinguishably as socialists and revolutionaries. And you see this again in a contemporary American debate, in that you have the most mild-mannered, incremental reform stuff, like, say, Obamacare, market-driven and everything, right? And to conservatives, that is just a stepping stone on the way to Venezuela. There's no distinguishing it in their heads, right? Even though... You know, like, Obamacare is a great example. This was a conservative idea that came out of the Heritage Foundation. It was something that was first trialed by a conservative Mitt Romney, of all people, right, in Massachusetts. This is, this is something I feel like a rational elite should accept, right? If you have all of the problems that are being caused by the American healthcare system, surely it's in the elite's self-interest to allow some sort of market-based way of addressing that. Not because they care, but just from the point of view of having like a stable and ordered society is surely in their self-interest, right? And if that argument doesn't strike through to you, if you need to make some compromises, if you need to do a little bit of redistribution, if you need to politically incorporate the working class in order to stop them being tempted by ideas like fascism, why wouldn't you do that? Why would you, wouldn't you prefer to have marginally less, but still have very much, and be safe, rather than to have everything and be very unsafe? And I really don't get it about the reactionaries and the conservatives of this period, is why do they behave so irrationally? And I'm drawn back to a quote by Orlando Patterson, 
who I've had on the show, where he looks at the rise of democracy in Greece. Bear with me. And he says, you know, a lot of people say that this was an elite innovation. What the elites did is they realised by ceding a little bit of control politically, they could shore themselves up economically. So I won't run through the argument, but the idea is that the elites was something the Athenian nobles gave to the plebs so that they could be protected in their slave empires. The elites obviously owned a lot of slaves in Athens, right? It's an interesting theory, and Orlando Patterson dismisses it out of hand. He says, quote, elites simply don't act that way, end quote. And this is someone who's studied, you know, as many human societies and really has just this broad-ranging, huge knowledge of all of human history to the point where it's kind of like interacting with an alien intelligence to talk to him. Um, but he just says elites simply don't act this way. His elites don't give ground, even if it's rational for them to do so. Even if, you know, that's what, what would seem to be in their strategic interest, they don't do it. And I find this idea really, really, really interesting. But now look at what the property I've been ascribing to elites all along through me saying I don't get it. I've been ascribing rational self-interest to them. And isn't that interesting, right? This is how difficult it is to really get behind ideology, if such a thing is even possible, right? Why? The contradiction is they don't act in the way that they describe themselves. They don't fully live up to their ideology. Well, maybe elites don't behave rationally. And I'm drawn again and again to a few sentences in the Discourses on Titus Livy by Niccolò Machiavelli. As cynical and as jovial a writer as you're ever going to get. And by the way, if you read Machiavelli, do read the Discourses, not the Prince. Start there. But Machiavelli says, in every society, there are essentially two mindsets. Not classes, not relations to the modes of production, but mindsets. That of those who have, and that of those who don't. It is the desire of those who have to dominate those who don't. And it is the desire of those who don't to not be dominated. Now, isn't that interesting? Think about another time when it would obviously be in the rational, economic, maximizing self-interests of people to give up a system of control. And that would be the end of segregation in America. This was serving nobody. It was in nobody's economic self-interest, and as many libertarians have pointed out afterwards, there's no good market justification for this. And indeed, market forces should, by and large, right, do away with segregation, like stores that openly discriminate should go out of business. But it took immense struggle, violent struggle, or at least the enduring of violence on the side of freedom fighters to end this. People were willing to murder their fellow citizens to keep this system in place. Something that could never be justified by an economic maximizing rational self-interest model. Why? Because they were invested in a system of domination. Remember, at least according to Machiavelli, that the interests of those in power isn't just to maintain power, it's to dominate, it's to humiliate. And the interests of those not in power is not to be humiliated. And apply that to today's politics, right? And, and 
this sometimes baffles me. When you have a global financial crisis, when you have global warming bearing down on us, when you have existential threats, the elites refuse to budge. We've just had recently, you know, this idea of increasing marginal tax rates. You know, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said, oh, let, let's... Um, raise the top marginal tax rate to people earning over $10 million. Let's raise that to 70%, where it's been before. And the result is diversion. This is so stupid. All of the billionaires, even the sort of liberal ones, supposedly liberal like Bill Gates, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. This isn't the answer. So even in the face of existential threats, they won't give ground in a way that just seems to me to be profoundly irrational. But it's not if what they're after is dominance and humiliation. And I think there's something surely true to that. It's not enough. Paul Krugman once wrote, in seeming bafflement, he said it's not enough that they get to keep their money. We all have to defer to them as well. Exactly. That's exactly what's going on. It's not enough to be in power. Again, as Machiavelli says, the desire is to humiliate. And if you think about the anger and the resentment that people have against politicians right now, against the elites and in the so-called populist movement, isn't that much better understood, not as a concern about where tax rates are, but because they feel humiliated? Have you ever had your card decline on you in a store? Oh, yeah, it doesn't work. Can you, can you try it again or... It's humiliating, right? There's an aspect of our economic life which is so deeply rooted in domination and humiliation that we don't think about it. People feel disrespected. Isn't this what Trump voters are telling us all the time? They feel disrespected. Why do we insist on trying to put an economic motive to that? Well, what sort of disrespect? Is it the, the, the lack of coal jobs? Is it, no, they feel disrespected. Like, process that feeling at face value. It may not be rational, but there it is. But also do the same for the elites. Now, here's what I find really interesting about that idea. You might agree or disagree with that analysis, but I actually think the, the, the need to dominate and humiliate other people is integral to what it is to be a human being. And the need to not be humiliated is also integral to who we are. And it's in that reconciliation of those, both those urges that you find civil society, right? And, you know, look at the way that, like, owning slaves, which is best understood not as a system, again, go back to my conversation with Orlando Patterson, not as a system of, domination, of uh, ownership, but as a system of domination. That does seem to be universal. And I think understanding that, you can start to understand why conservatives at the time fought against the rise of reforms that arguably were necessary to save those societies from the just body blows they were under. Why will conservatives and the vested interests today not only reject but laugh at and scorn honestly sensible solutions to existential crises? Now here's what's interesting. I think the, the explanation I've given you answers some of that. But notice this, a thousand economists plodding away in their slow blinkered way for a thousand years would never grasp that obvious insight about human nature that is immediately picked up by the much more incisive mind of Machiavelli. 
And that, to me, is what understanding ideologies is all about. It's not about learning this or that about the world. I mean, it is, but it's about learning about the world so we can take off those glasses that we've had on for so long that we forgot that we were wearing them. Why? Why? This, this behaviour doesn't match rational self-interest. How do we explain it? Well, the very question shows that you still have those glasses on. Now, maybe the way I've given you is just another pair of glasses, right? But it's in learning about the world and understanding it, we can start to sort of get behind our own eyes a little bit. That's what I found really valuable in learning about ideology myself and what I hope to pass on to you with this series. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Like I said, next week will be the final part of this series, and then we'll get back to interviews. If you like this show, please do share it on your own social media, help us get out there, and you can also sponsor us on Patreon, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. As always, a big thank you to everyone who does either of those things. I'm genuinely grateful for your support, and I'm genuinely grateful just to have the listeners. I do. I've actually felt quite nervous about producing these episodes, and I've tried to make them good and engaging and go into a lot of depth with them. Um, So yeah, I hope you like them. And yeah, thanks again for listening. I hope you'll be back with us next week.